0: As our children are leaving, go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. And again, children first grade and down below may leave now to go to kids' own worship. I mentioned our mission trip earlier back in April when we had a chance to go to India. Heath Swinnis and I had a unique experience of being able to go to a worship service. This was among a group of believers The Baptists in India celebrate Lent. And so for 40 days before Easter, they meet every night for worship. And so we pulled up to this neighborhood. Now, when I say neighborhood, it's a lot different than what we think of as a neighborhood. It's probably the size of this stage up here, maybe even smaller. uh, These houses packed together, and there were about 50 or 60 people that were on the floor singing their hearts out to the Lord in the middle of this little village area. Now, I want to remind you there was no screen. There was no overhead projector, there was no sound system, there was no lighting, there was no air conditioning, there was no, no, none of the trappings that we have in our 21st century American church. It was just a bunch of people singing their hearts out with tambourines, worshiping the Lord. And it was an amazing experience. I got up to preach and it was almost like you couldn't hear a pin drop. They were so captivated by what I had to say through the translator. And so this was an amazing worship experience. And, and what's even more amazing is that they were out in the middle of the neighborhood. They didn't care if anybody came by and saw them worshiping. They didn't care if, if they were making noise. They worshiped the Lord freely with a joy that I will never, ever forget. Now, maybe some of you have been in some of those amazing worship experiences. Maybe it was in an air-conditioned building with a wonderful praise team and a glorious pastor and everything was perfect. Or maybe it was in a country church with no air conditioning and you had hymns and and a lady on a piano and the preacher may not have been that polished, but he preached his heart out. Maybe you've had a wonderful worship experience. You know, in my life, I've had many different worship experiences. When I was a kid... The youth will appreciate this. When I was about seven years old, our family went to Glorietta. That's where a lot of the kids have gone the past couple years. And there's the big sanctuary that seats about 3,000 people. And I was seven years old, and I fell asleep during the worship service. And I woke up to a 300-person choir singing the Hallelujah Chorus. And the first words out of my mouth to my mom was, Are we in heaven? Are we in heaven? I've worshiped in a jam-packed little hut in the jungles of Martinique with no air conditioning. I've worshipped under a mosquito-infested tent in Nicaragua. I've worshipped in a youth room with just a guitar and about 20 teenagers, and I've had some wonderful worship experiences. I've had some wonderful worship experiences here at Emmanuel, even in this building it's awesome to sit here on the front and and just hear the singing coming from from behind there's a time i'll never forget in our old building you may have been there most of you probably were a few years ago in our old building it was in the heat of summer and if you remember we were trying to pull all the energy to keep the building cooled the air conditioning you remember that old building it took forever to keep it cooled and and one sunday i'm in the middle of preaching and guess what happens the lights went out you guys remember that pitch black because there's no windows in the old building And somebody comes up and I go, Does anybody have a flashlight? Somebody brings a flashlight. I finished preaching the sermon. It's almost as if you could hear a pin drop. It was so quiet in there. It It was a worship experience I'll never forget, worshiping in the dark. And what am I trying to say this morning is that worship is not a matter of style. It's not a matter of personal preference. It's not a matter of location. It's not even a matter of comfort. So here's my question for us this morning. And it may seem like a very weird question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What makes a worship service truly Christian? Have you ever thought about that? That's a weird question to ask, Sean, because thousands and tens of thousands of people are worshiping across the world today. Why would we even think that our worship was not even Christian? What makes our worship experience Christian? Now, corporately, we gather here together on the Lord's Day to worship as a body of Christ. But worship is more than just two hours on Sunday morning. It needs to translate into how we leave this place. When we walk out those doors, are we living a life of worship? But we come here each Sunday on the Lord's Day, summoned by the Lord, to worship the Most High God, Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we are talking about worship this morning. We're continuing this series on living the gospel-centered life. Now, we need to do a little bit of review. The gospel is not just the entry requirements to get into heaven. The gospel is not just for unbelievers to get saved. Yes, that's what it's a part of, but the gospel is for us as believers. We need the gospel every day. And as we looked at gospel repentance a few weeks ago, it involves killing sin and treasuring Christ. And those are some individual issues that we dealt with in the gospel, our our personal relationship with Jesus. But the Christian life is not in a vacuum. We're kind of going on a new trajectory this Sunday. We're going to talk about how does the gospel affect how we live our lives together as the church, as the body of Christ. How do we worship together? And you've heard this over and over throughout the years from this pulpit. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to what? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's what we say a lot around here. Our chief thing is to glorify God. What's the, first, what's the first message of our mission statement? We exist to display God's glory. So, if the, the primary purpose of why we exist is to give glory to God individually. And the primary purpose why we exist when we come together on the Lord's Day is to glorify God. We need to step back and ask the question, what what does it truly mean to worship God in a God glorifying way? What truly makes what we're doing this morning gospel centered? And for this, what I want us to do is explore an episode in the life of Jesus. He's already resurrected from the dead. He appears to his apostles He's about ready to go back up to heaven, to the right hand of the Father. But right before he goes back, he has some words. He has some experiences with his followers. And what I want us to see from this episode is what truly gospel-centered Christian worship looks like. So let's look at Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 53. Luke chapter 24, 36 through 53. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. And said to them peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and they thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, "Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that is I myself. Touch me and see; for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have." And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, "Have you anything here to eat?" And on the third day, rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and we're continually in the temple blessing God from this response of the apostles right before Jesus goes back up to heaven in the ascension we get a glimpse of what worship truly looks like but there are some questions that we should not be asking when it comes to worship and I want to be very clear this morning because I hear this all the time these are the questions that we should not be asking How did it make me feel? When I came into this worship service, did it appeal to my tastes, my preferences? Did the worship service give me a tingling sensation? Did it accommodate me? Was it tailored to me? Let me just ask you a very simple question. Who is worship for? Is it for us or is it for the Most High God? The question we should be asking when we come to this place is not how did it make me feel, how did God view what we did? Was God pleased with what happened here this morning? Is it been pleasing to God? Because see, what we can actually do is you can worship, worship. Have you thought about that? You can worship, worship. And you can evaluate a worship service on a subjective feeling of how it made you feel. And you can say things like, well, I didn't get anything out of the worship service today. I didn't get anything out of Pastor Sean's sermon. I didn't get anything out of the, out of the worship team. I didn't, I didn't get anything out of this. Guess what? That's the wrong question. Not did I get anything out of it. The question is, what did God get out of it? Was God pleased? Remember, he's the audience of one Now, here's a lot of times what happens in churches. You guys or the audience out there thinks that we're up here as the performers. The pastor's the performer. The praise team's the performer. You're the audience. We're out here to make you feel good. We're out here to entertain you. And so it's all a big production of of us trying to entertain you when we fail to realize that, no, all of us are the performers. And there's one audience. His name is God. He's the audience of one. Now, the the praise team is up here. They're, They're the cheerleaders. They're the prompters. I'm a cheerleader. I'm a prompter. But we're all together as the participants, and the audience is God himself. Now, Jonathan Edwards, that great pastor whom God was pleased to pour out revival in the first great awakening, had some very interesting words to say about a balance in worship. He said when it comes to worship, when it comes to the Spirit of God being poured out upon a people, there needs to be a balance. There needs to be a balance between light and heat. Now you may be asking the question, what is light and what is heat? Light. Light is doctrine. Light is theology. Light is the scriptures. Light involves more of our mind. The the content of our worship services, the light. Heat, on the other hand, he says, is the passion, the emotion, the affections, the zeal, the heartfelt um, posture that we come when we worship in. And he says we need to have a balance of both because if you have too much light, what happens? It can be all cognitive, it can breed intellectual snobbery, and it can be very cold and academic. We don't want that. On the other hand, he says, if you have too much heat, it gets really bizarre and the Bible's thrown out and let's just love Jesus and there's no theology, there's no doctrine and weird things start to happen. And so he says, you need to have a balance, light and heat, both coming together in our worship, the mind and the heart. So what I want to do this morning is to examine seven aspects seven aspects of what true gospel-centered worship looks like from this passage of scripture. And let's ask the question again, what makes a worship service truly Christian? A worship service that God would be pleased with. Now, I want to address light first. Light involves the content Light involves the message, what we're preaching, what we're singing, what comes from the content of what we're doing. What's the actual content of the worship service? So here's number one. First of all, a truly Christian worship service is saturated in the Scriptures. Is saturated in the Scriptures. I want you to notice what Jesus does with the, his disciples in verses 44 and 45. Notice what Jesus says in verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, what's that? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and the prophets, the whole last half of the Old Testament, and the Psalms, which is kind of a category of the entire writings. What Jesus is basically saying is the entire Old Testament points to me. Then look at verse 45. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He opened their minds. Yes, contrary to popular belief, worship involves our minds. God has to open our minds to understand the truths of Scripture. It involves having the scripture saturate everything we do. Our prayers, our songs, our gatherings, our our Bible studies, our our messages. Everything has to be pushing us towards being saturated in what this word has to say. Opening our minds to understand the scriptures. This is exactly what Paul did when he went to Thessalonica on on his missionary journey. Notice what Paul does in Acts 17, verses 2 through 3. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So a worship service has to involve explaining, proving, proving, digging deeply, talking about this word being saturated in the scriptures. And here's a very scary thing that could happen. A dangerous thing can happen. If we are not saturated in the scriptures, we can actually become idolaters and come to a worship service and worship a God that we've created in our own minds. A God that we think fits our suitabilities as opposed to the god who's revealed himself in the Scriptures. so how do we know how we're supposed to worship and who we're supposed to worship if we're not saturated in the scriptures so number one a truly worship christian worship service has got to be saturated in the scriptures but number two a truly christian worship service focuses on the centrality of the cross Look at verse 46, the centrality of the cross. Verse 45, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Verse 46, and he said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should, what? Suffer. Suffer. It's the word pasho. We get our word passion. The passion of the Christ. The suffering of the Christ. In other words, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ needs to be front and center in a worship service. Now, you can go to a lot of different worship services, and they can sing a lot of different songs. They can even read out of the Bible, and you can actually have messages out of the Bible. You can have some good teaching and some moral principles for living. But if the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is not even mentioned once in a worship service, I would have to say in its purest sense, is that truly a Christian worship service if Christ and His cross is not even mentioned once? i've watched televangelists and i've gone to worship services and i've heard people and i've come away from a worship service thinking that's some good advice that's some good principles for living but what you're telling me is 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 no different than what would be acceptable to dr phil to oprah to a muslim to an orthodox jew and to a unitarian you've said nothing that they would not disagree with If what is said from this pulpit, a Jew could say amen to, a Muslim could say amen to, and a a Unitarian could say amen to, then we've missed the boat. It's got to be Christ-centered in the cross. Yes, we do teach principles for living. Yes, there's practical application, but the, the primary message is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's what Jesus was doing here when he was opening their minds to understand the scripture. What did he open their minds to understand the scripture about? That he should suffer. doesn't mean that every message has to be evangelistic. doesn't mean that every single message has to talk about the cross. But it does mean this, in our songs, in our prayers, in our messages, everything that comes word, word associated here from the pulpit, needs to have the cross front and center. And notice what it says here, that he should suffer. Now, what did Jesus suffer on the cross? Did he suffer nails? Yes. Did he suffer crucifixion? Yes. And as painful and excruciating as the physical sufferings of Christ was, there was something that was more powerfully excruciating than he experienced. And that is the full wrath of God barreling down upon Jesus while he was on the cross, taking our sins as our substitute. Paul says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And there's another moment where the lights go out in a worship service. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. And by the way, when Jesus hung on that tree, it did get black. The sky went black. Christ became a curse for us. He was forsaken by God. He was crushed for our sins. Notice what Isaiah 53 says, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs. Isaiah 53, 4-6 Carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. You know, we can never remove the offense of the old rugged cross. We can never remove the blood-splattered power of the cross in our worship services, even if it doesn't seem sensible to modern sensibilities. Listen to Charles Spurgeon, when he said in the late 1800s. This is Spurgeon. He says, If ever there should come a wretched day when all of our pulpits should be full of modern thought, and that old doctrine of a substitutionary sacrifice shall be exploded, meaning done away with, Then will there remain no word of comfort for the guilty or hope for the despairing? Would you have me silence the doctrine of the blood of sprinkling? Would any of you attempt so horrible a deed? Shall we be censored if we continually proclaim the heaven-sent message of the blood of Jesus? Shall we speak with bated breath because some affected person shudders at the sound of the word blood? Or some cultured individual rebels at the old-fashioned thought of sacrifice? Nay, verily. That means no. In Old English... Listen to what he says. We will sooner have our tongue cut out than to cease to speak of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Cross has to be front and center. It's got to be saturated in scripture. The cross has to be front and center. But thirdly, a truly Christian worship service celebrates the reality of the resurrection. Notice what he says in verse 46. And thus it is written. That the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. It has to celebrate the resurrection. After Christ suffered the wrath of God on the cross, he rose again. We are a resurrection people. Jesus is alive. He's conquered the sin. sin. He's conquered the grave. Christ is risen. And notice what Paul says. Paul says something very interesting in First Corinthians fifteen seventeen. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Do our prayers reflect the resurrection? Do our songs celebrate the resurrection? Do we, do we talk about Christ rising from the dead more than just on Easter Sunday? Is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ front and central to all we are as a corporate body when we gather to worship? Now, this doesn't mean that every sermon is an evangelistic plea. Every sermon is just about the cross. You guys know me. We talk about a lot of things, the full counsel of God's word. But it does mean this, that the gospel's got to be front and center because there's always those two traps that we fall into, right? Legalism on one hand, guilt and condemnation on the other. Which leads me to the fourth element as part of the content of a Christian worship service. Saturated in scripture, centrality of the cross, reality of the resurrection. But fourthly, A truly Christian worship service calls people to repentance and hope of the forgiveness of their sins. Notice what Jesus says in verse 47. Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. It's not enough just to have the content of what people hear. Yes, we must preach the Scriptures. We must pray the Scriptures. We must sing the Scriptures. We must focus on the centrality of the cross, focus on the centrality of the resurrection. But we must also call people to respond. We must call people to repent. Notice verse forty-seven. It says that repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in His name. That word "proclaimed" means heralded, announced, broadcast—not hidden, talked about. It's got to be on our lips. This call to repent in order to find forgiveness of sins. Can a worship service truly be Christian if there's no hope of forgiveness and there's no call for response for people to repent and believe the gospel to find absolute forgiveness in the loving arms of Jesus? Can it truly be Christian if? We if we we just leave you walking out of this place not having any hope of your sins being forgiven any hope that christ paid for your sins paul says this in ephesians 1 chapter 7 verse 8 i mean chapter 1 verses 7 and 8 speaking about jesus in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Let me give you some words from our friend, Dr. Artazerdia, who's preached here before. He's a preaching professor, and oftentimes the question is asked to him, do you give an invitation at the end of your messages? And he says, no, I never give an invitation. And people are like, what do you mean you never give an invitation? He goes, I never give an invitation because the gospel does not call for an invitation. An invitation is something you get in the mail that you can politely refuse if you want to. You get, a, you get an invitation to a birthday party, you get an invitation to a dinner party, what can you do? Not RSVP, not go, I don't feel like going. You can just kindly, I don't really want to go because I've been invited. He says that is not the gospel. The gospel is a summons. Now what happens when you get a jury summons? You have to respond. If not, you break the law. And he says the gospel is not an invitation to be politely refused. The gospel is a summons to be responded to because it's coming from the king. And to defy it, to not respond, is to be rebellious. And so the gospel is a command. Jesus commands all people everywhere to repent and believe in him. And so if you're here this morning and you've never repented of your sins, you've never turned from your sins, you've never cast yourself at the mercy of Christ, you've never believed in him to take away your sins, and you've trusted him fully for salvation, then what are you waiting for? The Bible says today is the day of salvation. So that's the content. That's the light. That's what needs to be there in a worship service. The scriptures, the cross, the resurrection, the promise of forgiveness if people repent and place their faith in Christ. But we can do all of this and be missing something very important. Or should I say someone very important. Who must be present in our worship services to actually ensure anything of significance can happen? Well, the praise team, right, Sean? No. The pastor, right? No. We can sing our hearts out. The praise team can hit every excellent note. They can be on pitch. They can be in rhythm. They can do their best. I can knock the ball out of the park and preach this greatest sermon that I think that I could preach. But we are totally helpless to do only what God can do. I can't change hearts. I can't cause people to be saved. I can't bring about transformation. I am truly dependent upon who? The Holy Spirit. And that's number five. Fifthly, A truly Christian worship service is empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Notice what Jesus says in verse 49. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Now it doesn't say Holy Spirit here, but we know by reading Acts what the rest of the story is. But I want you to notice the Trinitarian nature of worship, how the Trinity shows up in our worship. God the Father summons us to worship. We come praising God the Father in the name and through the merits of Christ, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says the promise of the Father will come. Now, who's the promise? The promise is the Holy Spirit. What does He promise to do when He comes? Clothe them with power from on high. Power to do what? Power to witness. Power to worship. Power to live the Christian life. Power. Notice what Jesus says in John 16. 13 through 14, Jesus is talking about the spirit. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Notice that Jesus calls him what? The spirit of truth, light. The Holy Spirit takes this Scripture that He wrote and helps open our minds to the Scripture, but He also glorifies Christ. Notice what it says there. He will glorify me. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. He will glorify me. So the primary job of the Holy Spirit in our worship services is to shine the light upon the Scripture so we can understand it, but more importantly, to shine the light upon Christ so that our eyes can be opened to His glory and to His majesty. One of my favorite descriptions of this is from J.I. Packer's book, Keeping in Step with the Spirit. J.I. Packer says it's like this it's like a floodlight. There's floodlights out here on our building. What's the purpose of a floodlight? A floodlight is to, to light a path, right? Do you look at the floodlight? No, you look at the path, right? You don't draw attention to the floodlight, you draw attention to where you're supposed to walk. And he says that's what the Holy Spirit does. He's the floodlight. The Holy Spirit never says, look at me, come to me, worship me. The Holy Spirit's always, look at Christ, come to Christ. He's shining the light upon Christ so that we see Christ in all of his glory before us. And that's the role of the Holy Spirit here in our worship services, to open our eyes to the glory of Christ. And so there's got to be content, yes, but there's also got to be power. I mean, you can be as straight as a gum barrel, but just as empty. You can have all your theological ducks in a row, but have no power. But think about what happens when you are exalting the word that the Holy Spirit wrote, and you're exalting Christ, and you're exalting the resurrection, and you're calling forth people to repent and believe and, and find forgiveness of their sins. What does the Holy Spirit do? He shows up and does only what he can do. Do you realize the Holy Spirit is the only one that can convict of sin? He's the only one that can cause someone to be born again. He's the only one that can take a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. He's the only one that can take someone that's spiritually dead and make them spiritually alive. He's the only one that can work deeply in our hearts to bring about this transformation. He's the only one who can open our minds to the scripture. He's the only one that can produce fruit, fruit in our life. The Holy Spirit is indispensable. We cannot do anything without the Holy Spirit. I am nothing without the Holy Spirit. I hope you know that. We are nothing without the power of the Holy Spirit. Leonard Ravenhill, a British pastor, who desired to see revival hit America and England, has said this. I've given you this quote before, but I think it needs to be said again. He says this, The New Testament church did not depend on a moral majority, but rather a holy minority. The church right now has more fashion than passion, is more pathetic than prophetic, is more superficial than supernatural. The church that the apostles ministered in was a suffering church. Today, we have a sufficient church. Events in the Spirit-controlled church were amazing. In this day, the church is often just amusing. The New Testament church was identified with persecutions, prisons, and poverty. Today, many of us are identified with prosperity, popularity, and personalities. Let me ask you a very simple question. Are you praying for these things in our worship service? Are you praying? Are you praying that we would be saturated in the Scriptures? Are you praying that the centrality of Christ and his cross would be very evident? Are, we, are you praying that the resurrection would be, would be lifted up? Are you praying for people to come under conviction so they would repent and find forgiveness of their sins in Christ? Are you praying for the power of the Holy Spirit to clothe us upon high? Now, after this point, we focused on light, the content of what needs to be there, the doctrine, the scriptures, the content, what needs to be there. And we've seen all along that nothing of significance will happen if the Holy Spirit does not show up in power. But there's something very exciting that the Holy Spirit does. He takes the light and creates the heat. Now, what's the heat? The heat is the passion. The heat is the response. The heat is our heartfelt conviction, our affections. You see, we're not passive in a worship service. We are very active. So how do you participate? How do you participate? How do you get engaged? How do you lock in to what God is doing? How do you experience both heat and light? We also see heat in this passage. Not only do we see light, but we see heat. Not only do you see the content, but you see the passion. You see the emotion. So number six, a truly Christian worship service leads us to have a healthy fear of a sovereign God. A healthy fear of a sovereign God. Look at verse 41. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, marveling, they were awestruck. They were in wonder. They were amazed. And then look at verse 52. And they worshipped him. They worshipped him. You know what that word worship means? It means to bow down on the ground, prostrate yourself before a king and kiss his feet. You bow down in fear. You bow down in worship. You come and you fall face down before this king. Now, a lot of people think, well, I'm just going to bow down to Jesus in my heart. But you know, sometimes in a worship service, it's appropriate to get on your face in the middle of a worship service. To fall face down before this great king, to worship him, to honor him, to be in fear of him, not because he's going to blow you away, not because he's mad at you, but because he's an awesome God and we come worshiping him bowing down before him, not drawing attention to ourselves, but drawing attention to him. Notice in verse 53, it says, and they were continuing the temple, what? Blessing God. Now, what does it mean, blessing God? It's where we get our word eulogy. It's another way of speaking well about God. It doesn't mean that we bless God and that we add to his character. It's another way of talking about praising, speaking well of God, talking great about God, making much of God, making God the center of your conversation, worshiping him, blessing him. Often in the Old Testament when it talked about blessing God, it was this act of, of heartfelt worship. We see this especially in the Psalms. Psalm 41, 13. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Psalm 72, 18 through 19 says this, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Now here's what happens in a worship service experientially for you and me. You may not cognitively or you may not intuitively know what's going on, but here's what happens. When you are saturated under the authority of the word and the cross of Christ is lifted up and you're celebrating the resurrection and you're wonderfully, you're, you're just in joy of the fact that your sins have been forgiven and you're in a posture of repentance and the Holy Spirit comes in power and clothes us with on high, guess what the response is? We fall down and we worship. We experience this overwhelming sense of being in God's present you're passionate you're engaged so it takes the content the holy spirit brings the content into our hearts and minds and then we respond we engage now you don't measure a worship service on how it made you feel remember but there are emotions when it comes to being in a worship service you're giving god glory you're not so much focused on yourself and how it made you feel but you're passionately engaged in what god is doing which leads me to my seventh and final point a truly Christian worship service is marked by unexplainable joy. Unexplainable joy. Look at verse 41. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, I don't even know what that means, to be honest with you. They're, they're so much wrapped up in joy, they're, they're disbelieving that Jesus is right before them. And then look down at verse 52. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. In the original language, of that word great is mega, megas, mega joy. Now, what is joy? Joy is one of those hard things to put your finger on and say, I can define joy. But let me remind you of what joy is. It's something only Jesus can give. You cannot produce this joy in your hearts by yourself. It's that deep-seated contentment, overwhelming sense of peace that God is in control and that no matter what happens all around you with all your circumstances, you have the power and the presence of Christ in your life and you're flooded with this overwhelming sense of peace and contentment and joy. It's not related to our circumstances, but on God's provision. And so when we gather for worship, one of the chief characteristics that we gather should be joy. This is not a funeral home. Sorry, Bill, but, you know, this is not a funeral home. We don't walk around with dour looks on our faces and we're so unhappy to be here. It's the worst thing for a Christian to sit there and worship and just be, all right, prove to me this is going to be a good experience. Is the joy on our faces? Is the, and I'm not talking here about being cheerleaders with plastic smiles running around and being all fake, P.V. Hermanish, okay? That's not, not what I'm talking about. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about, P.V. Herman. <laughs> It's not a manufactured joy. Let me just tell you this. Joy can come in tears. There's times when you can just be sitting there quietly with tears of joy. Joys can come in moments of silence where you're just overwhelmed with God's presence. Joy can come when you're clapping and when you're singing. Joy can be when, when, when you're just, God just hits you with a thought in the middle of a worship. Joy can be when you see someone you haven't seen and you, and you cross the aisle to shake hands. Joy can come in all, a lot of different places, but it's something that God produces in our worship experience that His, His salvation is so great that it produces that joy. Are we marked by joy? Now let me just ask you a very interesting question. Let's say, for example, today, a person that has no connection with the Emmanuel Baptist Church whatsoever, a person that doesn't know anything about Jesus whatsoever. Let's say a villager from the Bogota comes in here and they can speak our language. And they were to walk in here, would they know what we're about? They may not understand all the songs that we sing. They may not understand all the words that come from my mouth. But when they leave, could there be any doubt in their mind as to what we're about? As to what the worship service is all about? What would they be confronted with? This is what I pray would happen. Listen to the words of Paul. This is my prayer every Sunday of what would happen. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 24 and 25. Listen to what Paul says. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Would that God would do this every Sunday. That an outsider, an unbeliever walks into this place and they fall on their face under heavy conviction and all they can say, they don't, may not understand what's going on but all they can say is God is here. I can't put my finger on it but God is here. God is among you. Would there be no mistake that God was here when he or she left? So what's the ultimate question when it comes to worship? Was God here today? Not, did I like worship? Did I like the song set that we sang? Did I like the drums? Did I like the lighting? Did I like the stage? Did I like the carpet? Did I like the sermon? Did it make me feel good? Was it too long? Was it too short? Did it please my taste? Did it please my preferences? Can I just be real honest with you? That is idolatry because what's the chief word? I me. We've got worship so confused in this country. We think it's all about us and what we like. And we never once stopped to think was God pleased with what happened here this morning? Was God pleased? Was God truly among us? Now, this is our corporate worship. What happens when we gather on the Lord's day together? but in just a few moments you're going to be leaving this place and you're going to be living your lives out there in the real world and worship is not just confined to two hours on Sunday morning worship is a lifestyle of how you live it out there in the world and so let me just ask you the same questions because what happens in a corporate worship service should translate into your life of worship is your life saturated with the scriptures are you one who's living under the authority of God's word? Are you spending time in this word? Are you reading this word? Are you spending the appropriate time saturating yourselves under the authority of the scriptures? Now, obviously, you can't preach sermons about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and, have, and all those kind of things. Maybe you, when you're witnessed, you do. But are you living a life of thankfulness for the cross? Is the cross center in your mind? Is the blood-splattered cross of Jesus Christ sinner in your mind? Are you thankful that He has forgiven you of all your sins? Are you living a life of repentance? Are you repenting from those sins and finding joy in the cross and in the resurrection? And is the Holy Spirit in your life? Is He showing up in power in your life? Do you have a fear of God? Are you prostrate on your face before God? Are you living in a healthy fear of God? Are you worshiping Him? are Are you obedient? Let me just say this. When you come in these doors on a sunny morning, do you have a predetermined decision, a predetermined choice, a predetermined desire to obey whatever you hear when you come in this place? Because a lot of people come in and they don't even think about the fact that they should obey what they hear. Don't be just a hearer of the word and not a doer. Do you have a predetermined commitment to do whatever the scripture says? And then is your life marked by joy? And can others see it in your face? Can they see it in your life? Can they see it in you? Or are you critical, thankless, irritable? When other people see your life, when they see your life, will they fall on their knees and say, God is truly in you? I don't know quite exactly what it is, but you've got something I don't have, and it's the gospel. Do people fall on their face and say, God is truly among you? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning.